The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the podcast author or individuals participating in the podcast and do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Tenderfoot TV, or their employees. This podcast also contains subject matter, which may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. It was a beautiful day in June 1995 in the east of Belgium. Eight-year-old Julie Lejeune arrived at her classmate Melissa's house at around 3 p.m. to practice their end-of-school-year dance routine. The girls were best of friends and excited about the upcoming summer break and beautiful weather. After practice, they convinced Melissa's mom to let them walk to the overpass just down the street to wave at the cars below. It sounds like a strange activity for eight-year-olds, but Melissa was used to doing this with her brother. She must have been excited to show her best friend, Julie, how fun it was to get honks and waves from the cars racing by below. But something evil was lurking near the bridge that day. Julie and Melissa crossed its path and then disappeared. It was as if they simply vanished in broad daylight from one minute to the next. From the time they were last seen by witnesses near the bridge to the moment Melissa's mother started looking for them, they were only unaccounted for for about 15 minutes. Unfortunately, in that small window of time, they were taken from that beautiful day into a very dark place. somebody who understands emotions. And I told them it is very exceptional that somebody abducts two children at the same time. Should have been the end of it in 1986. But my God, it was just the beginning. I think Belgium was a paradise for perverts in those days. Welcome to Le Monstre. I'm your host, Matt Graves. In the summer of 1995, I moved to Belgium and have lived here ever since. I'll never forget the fear and chaos unleashed that summer and the repercussions and questions that still reverberate to this day. It all started right here on this bridge on June 24th, 1995. A local man explains that eight-year-olds Julie Lejeune and Melissa Russo lived less than 500 meters away. This bridge is ground zero for one of the darkest chapters in the history of this country. Over 25 years ago, our story began. A story of abomination, incompetence, and conspiracy that led to the demise of the entire institution of Belgian federal police and rattled the foundations of its government. A story about a man whose accomplices, both known and unknown, are walking freely in the world today. A man so wicked that he's simply become known as Le Monstre. Shortly after Julie Lejeune and Melissa Rousseau went missing, Melissa's mother, Karine Rousseau, explained the disappearance in an interview. 
It's in French, so these are her words, read in English by an interpreter. I got on my bike and decided to go meet them so we could finish the walk all together. And I rode down to the bridge and back and didn't see them and then took the same route back and forth three times and I still didn't see them. Around this time, Julie's mother arrived to pick up her daughter. I arrived around 6 o'clock by car with my son. When I got there, Mrs. Russo was on the lawn getting off her bike. She came straight over and explained she had let the girls take a stroll for 30 minutes, but she couldn't find them. She had already made the round trip to the bridge three times looking for Julie and Melissa, and she was worried because she couldn't find them. So we decided to go looking for them by car. We searched the route they were supposed to take as well as other streets nearby where other friends lived, just in case the last track of time. At this point, both mothers were getting worried, so they decided to call the police and ask for help. Melissa's mother explained. It was about 6.45, and the girls were only 45 minutes late, but we were already very worried, worried enough to call the police. I'd say the police arrived within about 15 minutes. They asked us some basic questions. I'm not sure how long that lasted. Julie's mother chimed in. 15 or 20 minutes, I think. They asked us for pictures of the girls, and we gave them the ones we had at the time. I admit that at one point at night I had some very bad thoughts. That maybe they'd been picked up by a bad person who killed them and that we'd find them somewhere nearby. Everyone in the neighborhood was shocked about the disappearance. A neighbor saw them that day from her window. She explained that she saw them walking in the direction of the bridge and that they seemed calm and normal. A young couple walking back from that bridge were the last people to see them prior to their abduction. They explained that they had passed by two girls who were walking in the direction of the bridge. The girls said hello and were smiling. The couple said hello back and kept walking. Julie and Melissa's parents did everything right when their girls disappeared. Just like every kidnapping story you've ever heard, the police didn't immediately file a missing persons report. But the parents knew that time was of the essence, and they immediately contacted an association that helps locate missing children. Things moved quickly, and a massive missing persons poster campaign got underway. I distinctly remember these posters. On the left was a smiling Melissa in a red jumper, her soft features and big brown eyes smiling in a cute grin. Julie's also smiling, with her hair pulled back by a headband, surely to show off her new little stud earrings. These pictures are burned into the brains of almost anyone who lived through these times in Belgium. When I first saw them, I was in my mid-twenties, far removed from the worries of parenthood. When I look at them now, as a middle-aged man with two girls of my own, it's heartbreaking. If I try to put myself in the parents' shoes, the feeling is unbearable. The rush of anxiety is so dark and deep that I can't stand to hold the thought more than a few seconds. 
I can't imagine living with that feeling day after day without being able to escape it. I think it's something that only the parents of a missing child can really understand. Shortly after the abduction, Melissa's mother appeared on the news with a message for her daughter. Melissa, I'm here for you. Everyone's here for you at home. I don't know if there's something you can do to come home. Whether you can do something or not, I don't know. But we're here, my love, waiting for you. We're doing everything, everything we can do to find you. The tireless work of Julie and Melissa's family started to generate publicity, and national news channels cover the disappearance. Several volunteers helped them search all of the fields nearby and anywhere else the girls could have possibly gone. When no trace was found, the parents became convinced they'd been kidnapped. On one hand, they were happy not to have found their bodies, but a sinking sense of dread began to set in. They were absolutely convinced that Julie and Melissa were alive, and they refused to give up searching. This is a message to the kidnappers. We are still without any news of our girls, Julie and Melissa. For two weeks now, we've been waiting in anxiety. We can no longer take this situation. Whoever you are and wherever you are, we beg you for the return of our children. Please send us proof that they are alive and okay. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Your tax refund belongs to you, not an identity thief. Over $6 billion in tax refunds were flagged by the IRS for possible identity theft in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. LifeLock monitors and alerts you to identity threats you may miss on your own, even if you're careful with your personal information. And if you do become the victim of tax-related identity fraud, LifeLock has U.S.-based restoration specialists ready to help solve your identity theft issues. Plus, all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package, meaning LifeLock will reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Let LifeLock help you protect your financial information so all you have to worry about is what to do with your tax refund. Go to LifeLock.com iHeart and save up to 25% your first year. That's 25% off at LifeLock.com iHeart. Identity theft protection starts here. Investigators in Liège received their first interesting tip. 71-year-old Mary Louise Henroot lived close to the bridge where Julie and Melissa disappeared. Marie Louise lived a quiet elderly existence and didn't read newspapers or watch TV. She was a creature of habit who followed the same routine 
every day. June 24th was a beautiful day. Per her usual routine, she climbed the stairs to her room at around 4 p.m. Before going to bed at around 6 p.m., she liked to sit by the window for an hour or so, taking in the end of her day. From the window, Marie Louise can see the highway as well as the side roads and an open field. At around 5 p.m., she said she saw two girls walking along a small access road leading to the bridge. Apart from the cars racing down the highway, there's not much to see, so she watched the girls as they walked by going towards the bridge. As she sat up to close the curtains, she noticed a dark-colored car pull over on the right-hand side of the road next to the girls. A man got out of the car and opened one of the back doors. The girls got into the car. There didn't appear to be a struggle, and she assumed the girls knew the driver. He was a normal-looking man with thick, dark hair, wearing black pants. She wasn't a car buff, but settled on it possibly being a Peugeot 205 when inspectors helped her narrow down the possibilities. Other leads trickled in about different sightings. A man reported seeing two girls on the bridge as he drove under them on his motorcycle on June 24th after 5 p.m. He also recalled seeing a red car stopped in the emergency lane near the bridge. He remembered it because he was in the right lane and had swerved leftward to keep a safe distance. Four other separate witnesses reported seeing a red car stopped on the side of the highway near the bridge on June 24th. Some of them thought it was a Ford Fiesta. Two of these witnesses also reported seeing a van further along in the emergency lane. One of them was a doctor from Liège who sent a letter to police saying he'd seen a red car and a van stopped in the emergency lane near the bridge. He had slowed down for safety and noticed the van had French license plates and the red car had Belgian plates. And he even remembered the first three letters of the Belgian license plate as NKV or NVK. Finally, a woman in Liège who lived roughly six miles from where Julian Melissa disappeared reported an attempted kidnapping of her daughter and friend ages seven and eight earlier on the same day that Julian Melissa disappeared. She contacted police and reported that at approximately 12.15 p.m. on June 24, 1995, a man dressed in a blue and green striped shirt and dark trousers tried to tempt the girls into his car with candy. One of the girls testified that he had one hand on the steering wheel, and in the other hand, he held a handkerchief that seemed to be moist and gave off a weird smell. Luckily, the mother spotted what was going on and ran over to intervene. When the man saw her, he hit the gas and his tires screeched as he accelerated away. She formally identified the vehicle as a red Ford Fiesta. She reported this to police two days later on the following Monday. Here's what she said in an affidavit. These are her words, not her voice. 
Earlier in the year, in both March and May, a man driving a red car offered to take the girls for a ride. On June 24, 1995, at noon, the girls were playing outside. I saw my daughter moving away from the car. It was a red Ford Fiesta. I saw that my daughter was afraid. I got closer and saw that my daughter's friend, Diana, was sitting in the passenger seat of the car. I literally ripped her out of the car. The driver tried to keep her from getting out and then took off. I got a good look at him. He looked to be around 1 meter 70 tall, 5 foot 8, thin, with short dark hair parted on the right, brown eyes, wearing a blue and green striped shirt with dark trousers. I tried to reach the woman who made this statement, but couldn't find her. I did, however, track down one of the girls, Diana. She didn't want to speak with me directly, but we had a series of texts, and she confirmed that this actually did happen. Overall, six separate leads came in about the day that Julie and Melissa disappeared. There was an elderly woman who claimed that she saw the girls get into what looked like a dark-colored Peugeot on the access road next to the highway. Four different witnesses reported seeing a red car parked in the emergency lane on the side of the highway around the time of the disappearance. And another woman claimed that a man in a red car, on two occasions, tried to abduct her daughter and her daughter's friend just six miles away from the bridge where the girls went missing. Shortly after the disappearance, a criminologist named Karin Hutzabout created a description of the profile of the suspect she believed police should be looking for. Karin studied victimology and psychopathology in Paris and at the Washington College of Law in D.C. And she participated in the profiling program at FBI headquarters in Quantico. She's a criminal profiling expert who works directly with victims, judicial authorities, and perpetrators all over the world. My co-producer Thomas and I drove to her house on the outskirts of Ghent to meet her. So we're walking to Karine's house. And uh, this is a really cute little place. It's kind of a medieval cobblestone village. Barely even fit a car in this road. After the roughly one hour drive from Brussels, we arrive at a charming little village where Corrine works. She's got a moat. Wow. So we're crossing a little moat bridge. It's a peaceful little haven nestled into the Flemish countryside. It looks like something you'd see in a Bruegel or Rembrandt painting. This is beautiful. Hello. Hello, Karine. And Matt. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Kareen is warm and welcoming, but underneath that warmth, you can sense a warrior. She spent her life fighting for the rights of abused and confronting dangerous predators head on. After some pleasant small talk, we settled into a quaint room with a wood-burning furnace, and I asked her some questions about the disappearances of Julie and Melissa. It was June 1995. I was in the United States at that moment, in Washington, D.C., because I had practice placement at the FBI, uh, National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Now, while I was there, I started having faxes. At the time, it were faxes. We're talking about 25 years ago. Yeah. Asking my help because two little girls disappeared in Grasologne, in Belgium. 
You'll hear the name Grasalonia quite a bit in this story. It's the name of the municipality in Liège where the girls disappeared. It were Julie and Melissa. That was the 24th of June. Yeah. Then I think it was somewhere in July, I was back in Belgium and I was approached by a detective, which in the United States is quite normal to have a private detective, which in Europe is really, they find this ridiculous. Right. He said, well, listen, you have to help these parents. It is two weeks now, the children are missing and nothing is happening. Private detectives are rarely a welcome sight for police investigators. In the 90s in Europe, they were nowhere near as common as they are today. So when Karine and a detective showed up in Grasalonia to investigate the crime scene, police were less than thrilled to see them. They started by going to the bridge, and then Karine asked the detective to bring her to the closest exit. I then asked him, okay, if he comes from there, he saw the children, where can he get off the highway? So we, we searched for that first. Right. And it was very nearby, and then he could come back pick up the children and drive again, you know, by the bridge, going over the highway. He could just take them away. It could go easily. Then I saw that the, um, the weeds were cut, which was not the case. She's talking about wheat fields around the area. By the time she visited the scene in mid-July, the wheat was cut, but she surmised that it wouldn't have yet been cut on the 24th of June making it hard to see two small girls from one of the side roads. But from there, you could not see these children because the weeds were too high. So I said, okay, he saw them from the highway. And on a highway, you're not on foot or with your bicycle. So he has a car. If he has a car, he has more tendency to a methodical type. Karine explained that there are two types of kidnapper profiles. The methodical type someone who premeditates his crimes, versus the impulsive type, who acts on the spur of the moment. In this case, she was convinced they were dealing with a methodical profile. And then we went to the parents, and there, uh, the gendarmerie was already waiting for me inside. Very, very hostile. You know, I can't believe this. I mean... So when you showed up, you showed up at Julie and Melissa's house. Yeah, of Melissa. Of Melissa. And the mother of Julie was there, and Gino Rousseau was there too. Yeah. He was very, very nervous. Gino Rousseau is Melissa's father. He was really upset. And I said to these two policemen, I said, I saw people going in and out the room of Melissa... And I said, did you preserve DNA from Melissa? They hadn't preserved the DNA. It had been more than two weeks since the disappearance, and parents were getting frustrated by the lack of urgency from the gendarmerie, which is the name of the Belgian federal police. Karine tried to offer the police some advice. I said, you need to take some hair from a hairbrush or, you know, a a swimming suit or something. And then I said... You have to look for somebody who has been in prison for abduction, torture, and sequestration. And this policeman told me, listen, Miss Hitzebout, we are not in the United States here, you know. Then I said, okay, I'm going. So I wanted to leave. I've had it with these people. The situation was getting tense at the Rousseau house. Melissa's father, Gino, was becoming increasingly angry with police. And then... 
Gino, he threw his car keys on the, on, on the table and he said, get out, get out. And he threw the two policemen out. Gino Rousseau later testified that police had warned him that Karin Hutzabout was some sort of, quote, witch in training and that he shouldn't listen to her. And I could understand this, this array of these people, two little girls of eight years of age, and they were doing nothing at all. Right. So I understand them. I calmed them down and I told them it is very exceptional that somebody abducts two children at the same time. 87% of this kind of crimes are pre-planned. Right. Because this is a methodical type, and methodical types organize on beforehand where they're going to get rid of the children, their victims. Right. And if you don't find the killer, you won't find the victims. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other. As Infinity presents... A new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. After the police left, Karine stayed with the parents. She had some advice. She said that they should appeal to the Ministry of Justice and ask that a multidisciplinary team of crime experts be put on the case. The parents followed up and the ministry agreed. At the time, the Minister of Justice was Stefan de Klerk. He agreed to assign an investigation unit to the case, what Karine refers to in this interview as a cell. De Klerk sent me two officers of the gendarmerie. Major de Crane and Alain Remus. Okay. I helped them for two days to put together a cell to help these investigations. Now, Alain Remus, he's afraid of me because he knows what I'm saying is right. He was the most stupid man I've ever seen in my life. And he's the head of the cell. Right. And later on, when the case exploded, I heard that there were five people in this cell structure, from whom three were not even aware they were in it. Okay. So, so they, made, they, made a, they made a missing child unit to help find the disappeared girls and other cases, mm-hmm. but they didn't really know what they were doing, it sounds like, and the guy who was heading it up wasn't 
you didn't think he was very capable. No, he, and it, it was not, it, that is the sad thing. After years, you realize that they didn't have the intention to look for children. It just to peace the population. But we have it all. That was the argument I had with my husband all the time. We pay the police to do that, okay? Right. But they don't do it. I already had the child, Gavreya uh, Kavas, in 86. She's referring to a case in the mid-80s where a young boy disappeared in broad daylight on his way to play soccer with his brother. The boy's family and victim's advocates were highly critical of the lack of follow-up from police. Six years old, disappears in the middle of Brussels. He's still missing. And I had a friend who was at the gendarmerie and I asked him, what are you doing to find this child back? And he said, we are waiting. I said, waiting for what? Stop the world from turning. You have to find the child. Well, we are waiting for, for people who give us some clues. A six-year-old little boy. I couldn't understand. Yeah. So, you know, I thought this is another empty box. Now, after 25 years, you can see that it's all trembling down. And what I said 25 to 30 years ago is true. They give us the impression. It's all there. They, are, they have no training. They are not interested. They don't give a shit. Excuse me the expression. If your child is gone. Karine is seething at the memories of this time. She's a fierce woman who says exactly what she thinks right to your face. The Belgian Federal Police, or Gendarmerie, was founded in 1830. But it wasn't until 1992 that they had their first female officer. They wore special uniforms and carried themselves with an air of authority. I'm sure these officers didn't appreciate Karine second-guessing their work without pulling any punches. In the end, the profile she established for the possible kidnapper was quite detailed. It said that they should be looking for a white, French-speaking male between the age of 35 and 45 with a rap sheet of sexual offenses on minors, having already spent time in prison with a history of violent behavior, with a psychiatric file, probably married with children, and of above-average intelligence. Belgium is a small country that had a total population of around 10 million people at the time. You can roughly cut that by about 60% if you're focusing on French-speaking suspects as the majority of the country is Flemish-speaking. So if you think about it, we're talking about a pool roughly the size of a large U.S. city like Houston or Chicago. When you start to further narrow it down by gender, age, and previous convictions for sexual offenses on minors, it narrows very quickly. With this relatively small suspect pool, Locating the kidnapper of Julie and Melissa shouldn't have been an impossible task. Unless something else was at play. No one knew it at the time, but the disappearances of Julie Lejeune and Melissa Russo marked the beginning of a series of disappearances that would completely upend the country. This season on La Monstra. With the investigation plagued by accusations of incompetence, high-level corruption, and cover-ups, thousands would pour into the streets for massive protests across the country, 
demanding answers from a government that failed to protect its most vulnerable. This basement and the crimes committed here have made this house notorious. Every Belgian knows about Marc Dutroux's Chamber of Horrors. Here is a guy who is a known criminal, who has been convicted of raping and kidnapping children, and he somehow gets out of prison early. What happened after he got out of prison is just beyond belief. We'll hear from key players from the center of the investigation who agreed to be interviewed. I still remember driving home every evening and, and asking myself, are we followed or not? But still, I slept with my gun under my pillow every night. Eh? Really? Could you ask the witness if maybe he is scared of somebody? Is he maybe afraid of making statements because this gentleman is uh, watching what he is saying? And an astonishing witness who upended the investigation. I remember it like it's a film in my head. I can close my eyes and see every little details of that house where she was murdered. And we'll hear from people who didn't want to speak. To join us on this journey, take a second right now to follow or subscribe in your podcast app to get the latest updates and new episodes. The Monster is a production of Tenderfoot TV and iHeartRadio. Hosted and executive produced by me, Matt Graves. Produced by Thomas Resimont of Bubble Sound. Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay are executive producers on the behalf of Tenderfoot TV with producer Makeup and Vanity Set. Matt Frederick and Alex Williams are executive producers on the behalf of iHeartRadio with producer Trevor Young. Original music by Jay Ragsdale. Sound design by Cooper Skinner and Thomas Resimont. Mixed and mastered by Cooper Skinner. Cover design by Trevor Eiler. La Monstra includes archival audio from Sonuma RTBF archives and CNN archives. Special thanks to Beck Media and Marketing, Station 16, Jean Savigna, and the teams at iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. Find us on social media at monster underscore pod. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio or Tenderfoot TV, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity.